night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall. Your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zock Show. Joining me this morning is the Ula Guru and best-selling author Troy Amdel. Uh, his new book is Ula for Women: Seven Key Areas of Life to Have Less Stress, More Purpose, and Reveal the Greatness Within You. Troy is a Rochester, Minnesota native, graduated from Northwestern, cum laude. Uh, devoted husband, father, successful businessman, and has uh, traveled the world, retired debt-free at 42, and also was an Ironman triathlete. So he's done all kinds of exciting things. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Troy. So nice to be here this morning. Thank you. So this book is this Ula book, and uh, I just read the sampler that you sent to me, which is really amazing because it's for women specifically, right? So it, it's, it is. Um, which is really interesting from a couple guys writing a book on women, and I actually learned a new term yesterday called mansplain. Um, we're not mansplaining. <laughs> we're not. But our first book, our first book was a story of two guys just going through life together, uh, and the challenges we had in achieving dreams in the seven key areas of life. And we actually self-published that book and sold it out of the back of a '70s VW bus as we traveled the world, meeting people and connecting them to their dreams. And as we were talking to people, what we were finding is that many of the people, most uh, actually of the people we were meeting who were struggling with life balance were women. And what we did in this book, instead of our stories going through life, we spoke to everyday women who were overcoming the challenges they have in day-to-day life to find balance and have a life that's less overwhelming with less stress and more purpose. And we, so, we captured their stories in overcoming. And it, it, we used the simple principles of ULA and teamed it with their stories. And their stories are the inspiration and the fuel behind it. Troy, what does ULA mean? I mean, where, did, where does the term come from? It actually comes from the term ULA-LA. Uh, we made it up. <laughs> and if you search the hashtag online, it's taken a life of its own. Uh, but it, it's that feeling you have where if, if the key areas in life like finance and health and career and family are not only strong, but they're balanced and growing. And that's more difficult, I guess, for women. And I'm going to ask you why, because obviously it seems to me that's what you found out, that women are struggling more with balancing their lives than men. Generally, it really, yeah. yeah, it really does seem that way. And I, and I, in talking to people and getting to know them one-on-one, uh, women seem to be the natural multitaskers, and it's easier in general for them to say yes to things. And what happens is they're saying yes to so many things, they're often saying no to themselves and the dreams and goals that they have for their life. And that's the point of this book, is to like bring it back and say, what do you want for your life? Because, and I think, too, in talking to women, they feel it's a selfish act to work on themselves. And the reality is we would say working on yourself isn't selfish, it's selfless because a better you makes a better whatever you want to be, whether it's a mother or, or a CEO or, or whatever it is for you. If, if, you're, if you're getting the needs that you need met, you're better able to serve the world. Yeah, I think that's true. I think women do have difficulty saying no. Not exactly sure what the reason is. Maybe because we're so talented at everything. We just have that's so true. many talents. <laughs> and strong and like disciplined. It's amazing. Yeah. We're more like, I know I've been described as the ever-ready bunny by my 
my girlfriends and my boyfriend. It's sort of like you just keep on going. And I think that's kind of typical of women. I mean, men are kind of like sort of there and strong maybe at the outset, but women seem to just be able to keep on going and also taking on more responsibilities and more tasks and all that stuff, which isn't good for their balance, right? Yeah, uh, and it, it, makes it, it, it piles up too. That's the, that's what we're finding is the yeses pile up, and it gets to the point of overwhelm, and that's where the issue comes. You know, doing that for a while, ongoing, um, it it just it seems to hit a point where it's like, what do I want? This doesn't feel like it doesn't feel right with my inner self. Like I'm on a wrong path, and before it gets to the point of burnout or question or or a failure in a, a relationship or a fa- failure financially, it's like. That's what we ask people to do is what this book does is ask people to step outside of the chaos of life. Just, just step outside of it and look at it in these seven key areas. What do I really, where am I in this moment? What do I uniquely want for my life in these seven key areas? And then what are the action steps I'm going to take and allow that time, that valuable time to move forward toward them? What do you think has kept women or keeps women, because you've interviewed a lot of women, what keeps them from being able to to do that in these seven key areas of their lives? What, what are some of the things that prevent them from doing that? Well, two things. Um, one is they lose touch of their dreams and goals. They get so busy in the day-to-day. We are driving around on this 1970 VW bus, and when we meet people, we hand them a Sharpie and a sticker and say, what do you want for your life? And we're collecting one million dreams on the side of this bus. And you would be surprised how men and women, by the way, it's not just, a, it's not just women, but we hand them a Sharpie and a sticker, and they just, it's a blank in fact, many of them tear up because they don't know what they want for their life. Um, so the first one is they just, they just don't know. They've lost touch. When we're young, we have dreams and goals, and we get caught up in the busyness of day-to-day, and we lose it. The second one is, which is in, a, in Section 3 of the book, people have goals and dreams. So even those who have goals and dreams run into these things we call ULA blockers, the things that get in the way, like fear and guilt and worthiness issues like self-sabotage and straight-up laziness or envy. Um, so that can be the other thing that gets in the way is, hey, I know what I want, but I'm, I'm not feeling worth it on the inside, or I'm afraid to grow my business or confront my spouse on this issue we're having our relationship or contact the creditors to see what I actually owe on my debt. And they hit that blocker, and it just stops them. So once they hit the blocker, you say it stops them. So then what do you do? Give us examples, because obviously you're meeting hundreds, thousands of, of women is on this trip, on this journey. So um, what yeah, what's about, the, yeah. What they do successfully, um, the, so the people that overcome and go through the blocker or around the blocker and not just stop and retreat, um, they typically do three things. First, they just call it out. Uh, they, so if it's fear, they just say, hey, I'm afraid in this moment. Uh, and, and just there's, there's power in calling it out, that it's okay to be afraid, but it's not okay to stop there. But then what they do is let's say, let's use the example that, that I need to confront my spouse in a relationship issue. And they say, okay, now what does my life look like if I'm if I brave enough to, to have that conversation? And what does my life look like if I don't, if I just, just ignore it? And hopefully then the third step is 20 seconds of courage. Like what is the one action step I can take in this moment to move forward? It's like send a text, like we need to have a cup of coffee. Or if, it, if it's growing your business and you need to learn to present publicly or hop on Facebook Live or something that's new to you, I'm going to press go live. What is the action step to move forward? So it's really simply three steps we're seeing that people 
number one, need to acknowledge it. Number two, they need to look at it, put it in its place. Like, what does my life look like if I give in? What does my life look like if I overcome? And most importantly, what is the 20 seconds of courage or the single action step I can take in this moment to push through? So in other words, you have to be able or really just recognize what's holding you back. And you've listed some of these things and and then obviously act on it. But then you also mentioned, I think you talk about accelerators. These are the things that hold you back, but then there are things that will help put you forward. So what are some of those? Yeah, there's there's seven that are very common that, that we find with not just, again, women, but with men, too, that move your life forward. So the blockers get in the way, and we'll, the EULA accelerators are the things that if you embrace, they're traits and characteristics that if you embrace them and invite them into your life, you will get to the life you dream of and deserve more quickly. And, and they're things like gratitude, love, humility, wisdom, passion, discipline, and integrity. And just by knowing that, knowing that they're important in your life, um, and, and just if you get in, into your mind and say, okay, am I dealing with fear or am I dealing with gratitude, like finding gratitude in all things, um, that will get you there faster. You know, I've always hated the word, and hate maybe it's kind of strong, but gratitude had always bothered me because I thought it, it sort of reminded do I have to be grateful? There's something about it that's, and I know that's not, that's not very humble either, but it was, and so let's talk about gratitude because you mean something more than just because being just grateful, grateful in a way that's kind of like uh, there's a, a passivity when I think about that. Now, maybe that's my issue. So I want to talk about that. No, actually, I, it's an issue for a lot of people. And even for me, I cha- I'm challenged with the word gratitude a lot of days when things aren't going well. Um, it's easy to be grateful for the good things. Uh, when, when things are going great, it's easy to be grateful. But when, things are, when you're challenged, the key is to find gratitude in all things. And that's the depth. That's the type of gratitude we're talking about. Is there a lesson? Is the challenge I'm going through in this season of my life making me stronger for something better in the future? Um, those sorts of mindsets will help us get through. Because if you, if you look at a blocker, like, like if you go 180 from gratitude, it would be anger or frustration. I mean, if you think of the mindset of putting your mind in anger and moving forward or putting your mind in gratitude, one of them is going to get you through. Your life is in the same situation. But your your mindset is one is going to push you forward and one is going to going to cause you to stop right where you are and focus on on the negative part of it. So it's not like a it's a very common the way we look at gratitude is a very common sense way. Like if you feel yourself getting frustrated or you feel yourself getting angry, that's going to take you away from your dreams. If you can flip that and say in this moment, is there something to be grateful for? Um, am I healthy? Uh, do I have people who love me? Uh, do I have a roof over my head and food on the table? And some days it's difficult, but there's in every day there's something to be grateful for. Like even me personally, on the craziest of days, uh, I still put a pen to paper every night and find one thing to be grateful for. Every day when I sit down with my kids and we tuck them in, I'm like, what? Well, we say we call it a goodness of God moment. Like, what is one thing that was good today? Just to set your mindset to find things that are good in life. Well, let's talk about you because you have a lot to be grateful for. But these I view as your accomplishments too. I mean, you I read them in the beginning in your bio, but these are what you achieved. I mean, let's talk because maybe you could be the case history in this. Tell, tell, I mean, you are you were able obviously to achieve that balance. If at age forty two you could retire and do exactly what you wanted to do, 
um, travel the world and and write books and do all the things that you're doing. So you obviously sort of had the key, maybe just intuitive. You just knew how to balance your life and set goals and and grow because um, you are what you're for. That was at forty. How old are you now? I'm forty nine. So I retired seven years ago. Seven years ago. So how did you do that? Well, I, two, two, I want to say two things. The book was written by me and a, and a buddy, good friends, okay. and I play the part of the Ula guru, like tongue-in-cheek, and he plays the part of the Ula seeker because he had his Ula life, lost it, and got it back. So the book, our books highlight me in, in my high points. Um, I'm as much of a seeker as anybody listening. I have my own challenges. I've made my own mistakes. I have my own failures. Um, so... But, you know, my life isn't perfect. I'm, we're just everyday guys going through life. But the, the, the way I was able to retire early was these principles that are in the book. Uh, I, I grew up with a dad who worked three jobs to put food on the table in a very middle-class family um, for four kids. And I saw what that looked like. Uh, even my older brother, who's significantly older and my best friend, worked hard uh, to build a business to provide for his family. And as I watched that, as a young kid, I'm like, I, success looks different to me. Um, I, yes, I want to make money. And yes, I want to have a great business. But I also want a strong marriage. And I also want to have fun in life. I also want to explore my purpose on this planet. Um, so there's, I want to have strong friendships, empowering friendships and community. So I always looked at success a little different than society in the fact that just my income level and the neighborhood I lived in and the car I drove, um, and not that I can't have nice things, I have nice things, but I also wanted a well-rounded, and this, this all started in, in the early 90s where I'd sit with a group of guys, we'd go to the Hard Rock and we'd sit on the floor and put note cards in stacks of seven and not just what we want for business and money, but what do I want for my family in a stack? And what do I want for fun in the next 360 days? And what do I want for, for friends? In this? And we would do that, and we'd keep each other accountable. And that was really the birth of ULA. And I've always looked at my, my life that way. I set the goal to retire at 40 debt-free in high school. Like, that's one of those nerdy goals. Like, who sets goals in high school? Um, and it took me until 42. But the cool thing about that is I never lost sight of that dream. And I think that's what we're finding on this tour is that people have lost touch with the life they want. So you had a dream and you were very clear about what that dream was and you were very motivated and you kept that dream. You, you always had that vision, I guess I would call it too. And so you're saying us, we, uh, women, uh, but also men, just for all the things that happened to us, um, lose sight of that dream and then we get stuck and then we aren't and then, then we're not leading a balanced life we're just sort of being taken along for the ride I guess right because we're not making our own choices we're not being grateful for what we have we get involved in all those other things I mean those feelings the attitudes that you describe that are very negative so yeah that's, ex- that's exactly right I mean it, that's the simple part that the book guides you through is don't lose sight of your dreams write them down Glance at them every day and take three simple steps toward them every day. You can do all the other crazy stuff, run the kids to soccer, go to work, clean the house, run errands, whatever you have to do, but make sure every day you, you glance at the things that are really important in, in your long-term success in the life you dream of and deserve, and you're at least taking three action steps towards them. 
I mean, it's really not comp- It's not easy work, but it's not complicated. I never lost sight of that. I didn't want the weight of debt, and I wanted to be able to do what I want when I wanted at a young age. Um, and there were some seasons it was easy, and some seasons it was incredibly challenging, but I never lost sight of that. What was the biggest challenge for you? Because that was going to be my next question. There were a couple examples in the book that I have about your book of women. You know, sometimes our challenges aren't just, you know, everyday kinds of challenges, but they are really, really horrific challenges, very difficult crises. And and two of those you talk about in your book. So maybe we can talk about one whose son um, was diagnosed with bone cancer at age 19. Yeah, I mean, so this, that's a, it's an incredible story in the book. Um, and this is the, this is the point that the book brings together so nicely is the fact that the, the women we're featuring in this book, the women we've met are, are not celebrities with silver spoons who have this amazing path set for them. They are everyday women going through the challenges that we find out everyone's going through at some level. Some are extreme, like the, the gal you're talking about whose son was diagnosed with cancer and how she had to go through that and learn gratitude through that, an incredibly powerful story. But the reality is what we're finding, you know, it, it seems like we're in this Pinterest world and this Facebook world where we, we take snapshots and videos of, it's like it used to be the Christmas card, but now it's every day how amazing everyone's life looks. And it seems like they're, they're cooking the perfect meals for their families and running the amazing career. Here's the reality. When we meet them one-on-one and, they, and we tell them what we're doing and we put a Sharpie in their hand in the sticker and they, we start talking about life at coffee shops and parks, wherever we happen to be, they open up to us for some strange reason, men and women. And they say, you know what, I'm, I'm not... You know, I'm not good right now. I'll give you a prime example. This leg of the tour, we're going from Palm Beach, Florida, all the way to San Diego on a 1970 VW bus without air and power steering. And we were in the middle of nowhere, Florida, three nights ago. A guy passes us in a big truck. He's about 250 pounds with a big beard. He's waving waving at us to roll down our window. We do. He goes, what's up with this van? Because you can't miss it. He goes, what's up with this van? I'm like, we're just connecting people to their dreams, man. And he goes, that is so cool, and gives us a thumbs up and goes down the road. 20 minutes later, we're in this rural road in Florida. He's standing in the road waving his arms in the air to pull over. We were on Facebook Live at the time, and Dave, the co-author of the book, said, I think we might get shot. (laughs) Um, We're on live. He pulls us over, and he comes up, and he's in tears because he's had 20 minutes to reflect upon his life. 20 minutes to reflect upon his life. And we hand him a Sharpie and a sticker, and he couldn't put anything on the sticker because he said, I have no idea what I want in life. And people have this thing with us where it looks all, I guarantee you, he doesn't tell that to his wife and kids, and he doesn't tell it to his buddies at work, but man, there's just, there's, there's, there's the life we're living and there's the life we're portraying to other people. And I, there's something about this message that gets people to confront the life they're living if they want to do better. Yeah, it's the message, but also it has to be the messengers, both of you, you and Dave, Dave Braun, who's the co-author of the book. But you, there's something about you. It's something the way, about the way you're presenting the message. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know that. I mean, I, I think it's just timely. Um, this had an organic... This had an organic 
just took off. I was retired. Dave wanted to tell a story because going back to these principles pulled him out of a dark chapter in his life. So he said, let's write a book about it. We self-published it. We knew nothing about publishing. Um, 128,000 copies later out of the back of a bus, which I didn't know was a big deal, but in publishing, I guess it's a big deal. Um, we, We struck a nerve with people that are we as a society, the subtitle of our book is Find Balance in an Unbalanced World. Is, are we as a, success, a society going the right direction? The stats are there. 53% of marriages end in divorce. 55% of us hate our job. Can you just think of that for a moment, that we drive to a job we, we hate and we come home to a spouse we can't stand. And then we repeat that day in and day out and wonder why we're not happy. So I don't know if it's so much the messengers is in Dave and I, and I think we're just relatable everyday people with families of our own and challenges of our own, but I think we struck, we struck a nerve. Like, are we as a society on a path that's proper, or should we just uniquely start looking inward and say, what do I want for my life, and what are the steps I'm going to take to go get the dreams I have for my life, not the one my mom wants for me or my dad or my coworker or my neighbor or my spouse? What do I want for my life, and what am I going to do to go get that? So what you're saying, the timing is right in terms of our society. I, I think and so. Our yeah, we didn't, we, didn't really, we didn't really plan on this being a book series. And the original publishers um, for Chicken Soup for the Soul called us and said, hey, this, you guys are on to something. Do you guys want to do a series on this? And we're like, yeah, if there's an audience. Um, I mean, if there's, and it, there really is. It's, uh, I, I do think it's more, rather than messenger, I think it's the right message at the right time. Yeah, and I think what's, you said you were going from, what, Palm Beach to San Diego. Now, you're talking about so many different kinds of cities. I mean, Palm Beach, everybody should be living their dream, shouldn't they? <laughs> One would expect. You'd be surprised. Um, yeah. There's there's as many. I was We were in Manhattan in that bus. And go to ulalife.com and look at the bus, and you'll, you'll see how, to, how out of place that bus would look in Manhattan. And a guy being driven in a, in a, a Maybach was like, rolled down his window, and he... He's like, you guys are doing something cool. I saw you. He looked at our social media connections. I think he's going to go home and say, maybe my money's good, but maybe my family's not. You know, it's a different message for different people. People hear different things when we present ULA. Well, okay, you're talking about where we all have, people see different things. There's a uniqueness about it. But what would you see, we have a couple minutes left. What's the one quality that sort of binds us together, whether you live in Palm Beach or a small town in Montana or San Diego? The, the one thing that bonds us together is dreams. And the dreams are different. The stickers are different on the side of our bus. But inside of all of us, we have a unique, we believe, Dave and I believe, you have a unique calling with different skills, gifts, and abilities. And inside of you is a dream that is hopefully you're connected to. If not, you need to connect to because that will direct you in the path you're supposed to be on. Um, That's the one thing that doesn't matter where we go, men, women, kids, adults, all age groups, all demographics, everyone has a dream, and that's what we want to do is connect them to that. Well, you're doing just that, and uh, we have a minute left, so I want to, ULA for Women, seven key areas of life to have less stress, more purpose, and reveal the greatness within you. Uh, Troy Amdahl, Amdahl or Amdahl? It's Amdahl. Amdahl. They call us, uh, they call us the ULA guys. These The ULA guys. These are the ULA guys, Troy and Dave. And it's uh, so, uh, Troy, give us a website that we can go to, and we want to follow you on your this, journey. This is, yeah, we're, collect, we're on admission to collect a million dreams, so how you can help is go to ulalife.com. And if you can't see the bus in person, uh, if you go to ulalife.com and submit a dream, someone from our team will handwrite it on a Sharpie and slap it on our bus, and we'll get to a million. Fantastic. That's great. Great talking to you today. Uh, drive carefully. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're gonna, I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. 
Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. With a microphone and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is teacher, editor, and former matchmaker Penrose Halson. Uh, Her new book is The Marriage Bureau, the true story of how two matchmakers arranged love in wartime London. Uh, Before dating websites and apps, unattached people looking for the one knew that real life matchmakers could do their best chance at finding love. And this theory goes all the way back to the 1940s when two determined 24-year-olds opened the Marriage Bureau in London. Now, we got to fast forward, I guess, for 50 years, a long time, to 1992, when Penrose Halson, uh, a former client of the Bureau, was asked to take over the business. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Penrose. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, that's quite a story. So we fast forward 50 years. They had matchmaking way back in the, what, late 30s, early 40s, the Marriage Bureau. Uh, we, I think we tend to think we're unique uh, with our online dating, but apparently uh, that's really just an outgrowth of what began in 50 years ago. Yes, yes. It, it, the, the Internet really has... It's just the modern version of, of what these two remarkable young women started off because all they had then was some files and paper and pencil and, and, and a very ancient typewriter, and that was it. Um, but they had a completely different approach because their approach was entirely personal. They interviewed every single client and used um, all their personal knowledge of those clients to, to put them together, to introduce them. So it was essentially the same, but the procedure was utterly different. What was the response at that time for two young women to be running a marriage bureau? Because it seems to me that that would kind of been out of sync with two young women were allowed to do during that time. Well, luckily nobody stopped them, but it, it was quite extraordinary and, and unusual thing to do. And a lot of their friends and bank managers and solicitors and all were horrified. They were outraged. They thought it was going to be a high-class brothel. But it wasn't at all. It was a deadly serious um, thing. The purpose, stated purpose of the Marriage Bureau was to introduce, with a view to matrimony, persons who desire to find matrimonial partners. That was the, the, what was written at the top of the form. And they, they got away with it partly because they set up in April 1939, five months before war broke out. And at the time, the press, the British press, was absolutely overwhelmed with terrible, gloomy stories because everybody knew that war was coming. And the press seized on these two young, pretty, glamorous girls doing something so extraordinary in the heart of the smartest part of London. And they wrote them up all over the place, and they took them out to lunch at the Ritz and and wrote stories after story. And so the publicity brought thousands of people, well, hundreds to start with, of, of clients flocking to the door. Who were the clients at that time? I mean, this is, you know, as you said, the outbreak of World War II. So who, you know, during that period of time, who were the ones who came to them? Men, women, you know, what kind of backgrounds? Uh, who were their clients? Well, all sorts. And 
interestingly, the, the, the girls had set up this marriage bureau to help um, men stuck out in India, Africa, uh, outposts of the British Empire, who used to sail back to England only once every few years to find a wife. And that was their main purpose, to help these men. Of course, when war came, those men could no longer get their leave and come and say, but because of the press publicity, and hundreds of other people came, and they were all kinds. It was quite extraordinary. They had anything from uh, rat catchers, earls, debutantes, ladies' maids. And there was a, a, a man who ran a factory making artificial limbs. Uh, there was a trapeze artist <laughs> who was very fed up because he wanted to find a woman who would not only be his wife, but also join him in his act. And Heather Jenner, when she interviewed him, said she really couldn't find a young woman who would be happy to wear three spangles and hang upside down from a high wire in a circus tent. So the trapeze artist stomped off and, and luckily didn't register with the Bureau. But there were just every, every layer of society, and the younger, the poorer ones were not charged the full fee for registration. So there was a, this massive range of people, but all wanting to find somebody to marry who was of their same sort of class and background. That was a critical factor then. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Same class, same background, which probably is very, probably different today. There would be other criteria, I would imagine. But I, I think uh, in, in reading your in reading your book, um, one of the things it seems that particularly women wanted at that time was somebody who could take care of them, who was going to be a good provider, who was going to have a good job, because at that time women really weren't out in the workforce. I guess after World War II, they uh, began working. But so it was, uh, they had, it sounds to me like that was sort of a unifying criteria amongst the women, somebody who could uh, help, you know, they wanted to have children and they wanted to be taken care of. Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely, you're quite right, because, of course, women uh, in 1939, hardly any of them were educated to do anything except marry. Women, women were just meant to be wives and mothers, and that's what happened both to Heather Jenner and to Mary Oliver. They, in the end, they set up this remarkable thing, but they had, they had no educational training beyond a very basic thing. So, it, women did not only want but also need um, to find somebody who could look after them financially. Um, interesting, even after the war, the, there was a, there's an article in the Queen magazine, which is a, a, quite a, 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 an important magazine in England, and it, it stated in 1949, it said, women, of course, as the more practical sex, look upon a man as security. That is quite natural, because not only do most women suffer from an inferiority complex, but they are well aware that though they may work as efficiently as two men, they'll be lucky to get the price of one. Besides, what happens when a woman gets old? Unless somebody leaves her legacies, she must go on toiling until some kindly slave driver of an employer advises her to seek refuge in the workhouse. Well, that's pretty extreme, but basically it is applied. So women needed somebody to look after them, and by and large, men were looking for somebody to look after them domestically, run the house, do the cooking, have the babies, etc., and not go out to work. In fact, um, the, the marriage bureau proprietors asked men this question, which would appall people now, would you let your wife work? 
You're talking about 19, you're talking about uh, 50 years ago, but I think just recently, uh, maybe even up until the 60s and the 70s, uh, I, I, heard, I could hear, I mean, that was something that um, also men would say about their wives. Well, I'll, I'll let you, yeah. you know, I'll let her do this. I'll let her work part time. Um, and that expression, yeah, yeah was, is not so, it's not 50 years ago. Unfortunately, it's probably 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it, it stems from the time when really a woman was a man's property. And he could say what, what she could or could not do, what he would allow her to do. Gosh, how it's changed. <laughs> uh, well, okay, it's changed. Uh, now let's sort of let's fast forward um, to your experience with the Marriage Bureau. Well, yes, I was very lucky in a way because I was sent by my very determined mother when I was 25 um, to a Marriage Bureau because um, I was on the shelf. My, I had um, a brother and two sisters. They'd all married uh, at 19, 20, 21. Um, and there was I at 25, not doing the right thing at all. Anyway, I went to this marriage bureau, which was run by a formidable lady, American-Irish. Um, and she sat me down with a, a large glass of sherry, because that's what she did with all clients, to loosen them up, and quizzed me about you know, what kind of man I wanted to meet. Well, I wasn't very sure myself, but um, anyway, I joined the Bureau. I met some men. I didn't marry any of them, but it was extremely useful experience, as it turned out later. When how, I did. how was it useful? How was it useful? Like, what kind of men did you meet that you obviously didn't want to spend the rest of your life with? But what were the variety of men you met from the Bureau? Well, by that stage... Um, uh, uh, the, the, in 1939, so I said they had all classes, all types, everything. By um, the 1960s, um, marriage bureau were really uh, used mainly by middle-class, educated people. And the, the kind of men I met were things like naval officers, and, uh, PhD students, um, businessmen, can't remember any of them, actually. Um, it, 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 it was quite different from the, the the wartime marriage bureau, and it, and it continued like that. I think right through till I, I stopped running the bureau in two thousand. But it was always like that because education largely took over from class as a sort of defining and um, an important factor. People people um, in the during the war wanted to marry somebody of the same class. Um, education didn't really come into it because most women didn't have any anyway. Um, but by the 60s, uh, with much, much more education of women, people tended to want to, somebody of their same sort of educational level or similar. Uh, so education was, was the, one of the key factors in, get, in uh, pe- um, matching people together. But <clears throat> So none of these were a match for you? None of the... I'm sorry? None of these men were a match for you. No, well, I, I, I didn't, um, I didn't really fancy <laughs> marrying any of them, and I wandered off, as as lots of people do. They, I, I, you know, found other boyfriends elsewhere, and and it wasn't till much later that um, when I had come across Bill, and and he 
decided that we should um, buy the marriage bureau that, that came, up, came up for sale in 1986. And I thought it was absolutely lunatic idea to buy a marriage bureau. But he was quite sure that I'd be good at it. And indeed, it suited me down to the ground. I loved it. We made lots of friends. And there were lots of happy marriages. There were some tragedies, as there always are. But it, it, um, it suited perfectly. Let's talk about first some wonderful. of the happy marriages. And then we do want to hear the tragedies, too. We want to hear both your experiences. So what were some of the most kind of the happiest of, of, of I guess, couples or people you got together? And uh, then we can talk about the ones that didn't work out so well. Uh, well, of, of my own, um, in the 80s, 90s, I think one of the, the, the most um, happy was a, a woman of 60 who'd never married. Um, she was a wonderful person, a nurse. She'd spent her whole life looking after her patients and looking after her father, who was ill for years and then died, and then her mother, who was ill for years and died. And she was an only child. She never had a chance to meet anybody. And she came along to me when she was 60, um, determined to register. And I, I was terrified because the prospects for somebody like that were very, very slight. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, she married, through um, an introduction from me, a widower who had initially thought, like all widowers do, that life would start again with a second wife who was much, much younger. Because in his experience, wives died. And his wife had died. But anyway, I'd introduced him to some much younger ones. And of course, it hadn't worked. I knew it wouldn't. But so having met unsuccessfully these younger ones, I introduced him, knowing the time was ripe, to this delightful lady of 60. He was about 63. And they, they married. And at their wedding, all their friends thought that they were absolutely made for each other. And we're still in touch with them. They're in their 80s now. They go off on cruises together. They are devoted. And it's lovely. That's a great story. Well, you have a knack for it, I guess. You sort of, I mean, it seems, to, right? You, it's not just looking at the statistics about this person would match up with that one, education-wise or whatever, but you seem to, you have to have a feel for it, it sounds like. You have to get a sense. You, you know, it's, it's almost like a therapist in a way uh, in, in terms of putting these people together. Yes, there's a lot of that, but equally, it, it very much helped if clients will help themselves. And what happens is that if a client keeps in touch and you get to know them a bit better and you get to know their reactions to people whom you also know and you know a bit about their situation, then that client has a much better chance of you being able to help them. I mean, I remember one woman, and again, in, in, she was in her 50s and she was divorced and there were very, very few possible men for her, but she was marvellous. She rang me once or twice a year, and this went on for about five years. Um, and a man turned up that I was longing to introduce her to, but he was a devout Catholic. He would not meet anybody except somebody widowed or possibly single. No divorce. And one day, this woman rang me, and she said, oh dear, her ex-husband had died. And I almost said, oh, hallelujah. That's <laughs> great. But... She immediately became a widow, not a book. I introduced her to this man. They've been married now for, I don't know, 25 years. But she helped herself, you see. She helped me to help her. Well, you know, one thing that you just said... Yeah, but one thing you just said was that that clients can help themselves. So when you're matching people up, 
they have to keep in contact with you so you have a sense of what went wrong or what went right or you know what's happening with mm. them that doesn't happen today with these online dating services and and maybe that's the reason why it sometimes doesn't work or doesn't work out well because there isn't that kind of ongoing connection with the service um, as you're describing it. Yes, it's a, it's a whole different dimension, and of course, online dating can can work, and it sometimes does. But but a good matchmaker, I think, adds that extra it, that the personal is. It can be wonderful, and it can lead on to great friendships as well. But you, it also is a, is a safety net because if a, a client has anything uh, untoward to report, if, if a man, say, or a woman, tries to um, borrow a whole lot of money off them, for example, if the matchmaker is told that, the matchmaker is in a position to discontinue introductions to anybody who, who seems to be you know, dodgy to put too fine a point, well, you can't do that with the internet. And so I think it's, it's just a, a, a bonus to have a good matchmaker. But there You're a good matchmaker, about. but you, you are, are or were a good matchmaker, but you did say that there were some situations that ended up in disaster. What were those? Um, disaster because of, of, of a client being awful or just natural disasters. Were there many of those? Um, well, um, a, a disaster not not through any wickedness was, for example, a, a man who came along to the Bureau and um, he was obviously very shaky. He uh, was longing to remarry, but he was still very distressed by having been divorced, um, and I just talked to him, and we, he he kept in touch. He didn't register. Um, it was about two years before he did finally register, but he never met anybody through me because the next I heard was from his daughter, who said he had committed suicide. And now that was the most terrible thing, but it, it, these things happen. And so he, there was another man who married very happily. Um, through uh, an introduction I made, and a, a year later, he, he died of cancer. And these these are you know, tragedies that, that, that happen in any context, but you're very close to them when you are dealing with their very personal life of trying to find someone to marry. What kind of criteria did you require? How much information could you get or did you have uh, about each one of these people, uh, each one of your clients, for instance, what kind of information did they have to give you to be able to sign up for the bureau? And they didn't have to give me um, anything very detailed, apart from basically um, where they lived, you know, what their marital status was, what their background was, their work. But I always found that sitting there, because I interviewed every single client, that. My, it was difficult to stop people telling me absolutely everything. And it wasn't a matter of me having to elicit information. It was, it was more a question of, of, of trying to, to limit the information because people, if they trust you, which, thank goodness, my clients did, they will simply spill out all sorts of things about their life, their relationships. So 
that that wasn't a problem at all. And I would have to um, get my own impressions, my own feel of, of the sort of things that really mattered to that person. And that's what was critical in the, whom they should meet. And the same, very much the same applied in the 40s with, with the Heather Jenner and Mary Oliver's bureau. They, a lot of it was based on um, personal knowledge that simply came um, unsolicited to the interviewer. So you connected with your clients, and and when you're able to do that, as I go back, it's sort of it's a counselor, it's a therapist, it's sort of that kind of a, a relationship, I guess, with these people. Then uh, they opened up to you, and you were able to be empathetic too. You have it sounds like you have all the qualities for um, getting that kind of information from your clients, but. Um, it's a great book. It's it's really interesting stories, and um, I want to mention that we only have a couple minutes, so I want to mention the book, The Marriage Bureau, True Stories of 1940s London Matchmakers, Penrose Halson. Penrose, how can we connect with you, either uh, online? Uh, you can buy the book, uh, I assume, online in bookstores everywhere. You can get it. Um, there's, there's a lot of information about where to get it in, in the States on the website, www.penrosehalson, or one word, dot com. Great. And Great having you. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Penrose Halson. Thank you. Great having you. I'm Catherine Zox, Thank you. your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.